This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. There are something like 60 million evangelicals in North America. A good percentage of them are part of a 19th century movement known as dispensationalism, founded by the English clergyman John Nelson Darby, who was ordained in the Church of Ireland, which he left in 1831, and became the founder of the Brethren Movement. We might speak of original dispensationalism, modified dispensationalism associated with Lewis Berry Schaefer, who died in 1952, and Charles Ryrie, who died in 2016, and then also since the 1980s of progressive dispensationalism. These movements have their differences. Arguably, the earliest dispensationalists taught salvation by works under the Mosaic Dispensation. It's a system of seven different dispensations. But that view, salvation by works under Moses, was rejected by the modified and progressive dispensation. They have things in common, however. All of them see God's promises to national Israel to be at the heart of the biblical story. They look forward to a pre-tribulation rapture and a millennial kingdom, featuring the restoration of the national Israelite kingdom and the temple sacrifices. Another thing that binds most dispensationalists together is a rejection of covenant theology. In dispensational schools, students are warned against the dangers of covenant theology. Typically, adherents to this movement hear about covenant theology more than they read the sources of it or hear it. So, the journey from dispensationalism to Reformed covenant theology is not easy. And for many dispensationalists, covenant theology remains an undiscovered country. But that's not true for Pat Abendroth. He was born in Omaha, went to school there, graduated from the University of Nebraska, go Big Red, and then finally the Master's Seminary in Southern California. Since 1998, he's been senior pastor at Omaha Bible Church and, a few years ago, earned his Doctor of Ministry degree through the Ligonier Academy, and he did his work on covenant theology. So he has actually been engaging covenant theology and embracing it and teaching it to his congregation in Omaha. He's here on campus this week to attend the 2019 faculty conference on the Canons of Dort, and he's here with some friends and fellow members from his congregation in Omaha. Hey, Pat. Welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's great to be here. It's a privilege and an honor, and we're excited to be on campus for the conference. So what is a good, formerly dispensationalist boy doing at Westminster Seminary, California, in the midst of all of these corrupting covenant types? I think it comes down to one word, Scott, and the one word would be justification. Okay. Explain. How is it that justification gets you out of Omaha and on your bicycle riding up and down the coast and then attending the conference? I think this story goes back to the fact that from early on, justification was important to me. And when I was a seminary student, I can remember when John MacArthur came into chapel, having just met with the likes of J.I. Packer and Michael Horton and R.C. Sproul. And he really stressed how important this reality of sola fide is because of the evangelicals and Catholics together ordeal. And it just struck me then, I need to know everything I can know about this matter because it's obviously important. And from there, it's justification, sola fide, and then imputation, and then Christ's righteousness credited to us by faith. And it was almost, you know, in a good sense, kind of a rabbit hole you go down. And before you know it, you believe in justification, sola fide, and you end up affirming covenant theology. All right, let's go back and trace some of your biography and fill in some of the blanks. Uh, first of all, you have a brother who is a pastor of a Bible church in the Boston metro. 
I do. Mike Abendroth. Abendroth. We had a family feud over how to pronounce our last name, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Um, I think our great-grandmother said, from this day on, we will not be Abendroth. We will be Abendroth. Okay. And we've been saying it wrong ever since. So <laughs> okay. anyway. Yeah, he's a pastor. We graduated together from seminary. I like to say to people, we're so like-minded, we almost don't get along. <laughs> um, but it's a great kindred spirit. We love each other very much and have like theology. Right. He's been making the same kind of theological journey that you have in some ways, right? He's also been exploring covenant theology. He absolutely has been, and it's been a similar journey, and I'm super thankful for that. Uh, we were warned that covenant theology was sort of the boogeyman and to be avoided at all costs. We were never really taught exactly what it was. But I don't know, Scott, if you've ever seen that movie called The Village. I'm aware of it. I don't think I've seen it. I think it's a Night Shyamalan kind oh, of yeah, movie. No, I tend not to watch scary movies unless it's old. If it's old and in black and white, I can okay. handle it. I'm a okay. big fan of Frankenstein and that stuff. Not the greatest movie in the whole world, but the interesting <laughs> thing about it is you have these people, and this is a spoiler alert, by the way, if any's yeah. gonna, anybody's going to watch it. Probably been out for a while, so. But when something really bad happens and they really need help, they have to send people to the outside to get help. Uh -huh. And so... I like to think of covenant theology that way, when justification is really in trouble and really jeopardized and the gospel's threatened. Where I ended up turning and where people end up going is they go to covenant theology where this stuff has already been hashed out and it's already been worked out, that Christ has done it all and we receive what he has done by faith alone. And apart from that, we really start messing the gospel up. I think covenant theology has the answers, even though we might not know that the covenant theology does. Now, you and I are both Nebraskans. You were raised in Omaha. I lived 10 years in Omaha, probably a little bit east of you. You lived out west. That's true. It's very true. And you were not raised in an evangelical tradition, exactly. You and your brother were raised in the mainline Lutheran church. Yes, we were. And how is it that you ended up going to an evangelical seminary? I ended up being at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and someone, Scott— Go Big Red. Yeah, amen. So, <laughs> Runzas, the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's R-U-N-Z-A, and it's a regional restaurant that exists in Nebraska, Kansas, a little bit in Colorado. If you're passing through and you see a restaurant, R-U-N-Z-A, I'm a big fan of the hamburgers. They're excellent. They're excellent. I know people that lived in Nebraska for 30 years and they still won't try them because there's cabbage involved. So, Well, in the Runza, that's a, yeah, it's a sandwich sort of thing. Uh, it's a German-Russian sandwich sort of thing. I was describing them to John Fesco when he was in town and he said, oh, I love stinky food, so I think <laughs> I'll love them. And as a matter of fact, I think he did love Runza. Yeah, no, I told him, you got to have to go to Runza. All right, so you grew up in Omaha and went to Nebraska. What happened when you were at the university? Now that's in Lincoln, about 50 miles away. Yeah, so at the university, someone had the audacity, Scott, to uh, question my religion, as it were, and ask me about what I believed about God and eternal life. And of course, I was offended by that, but it drove me to read the Bible. And I'm so grateful for the fact that I was reading the Bible. I went to Love Library there on campus, yeah. pre-internet days, and I was looking up all of these words from the Bible in the English dictionary to find out that it was describing me when it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're not sure what he's talking about, he's referring to a Bible passage that wherein the Apostle Paul says, people who do this, 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 and this, right, will 
not inherit the kingdom of God. And as you read that, you thought, yeah, I've done that one and that one. I hadn't done all of (laughs) them, them, but I knew pretty surely that I was not a Christian. (laughs) And that was really great. God really used that person in my life. He used the Bible profoundly in my life. And then I started reading the Bible. I didn't understand anything, but I joined a local campus group. And all along, about the same time, my brother's living in Southern California, and he's being evangelized by the person who is now his wife. And so we were converted at about the same time, separate circumstance. And then we started growing together. He was sending me Bible tapes, you know, um, Calvary Chapel kind of stuff. And the more we grew and learned, he started Master Seminary. And then I joined him. And then we graduated together in 96. And where uh, were you in church in Lincoln, just out of interest? So in Lincoln, uh, you know, part of a parachurch ministry that didn't stress local church, I went to an evangelical free church for a time. Oh, I know where you were. Way out on 70th Street or 84th Street. Yeah. Yep. So was baptized there as a believer and uh, just wanted to know the Bible. I wanted to go to seminary even for wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. I just was hungry and wanted to know and wanted to learn. And I'm really thankful for the work of the Spirit in my life in that way. So you go to seminary and you begin to get a story about how the Bible works, what the story of Scripture is. So you get a a big picture sort of map, a way of understanding Scripture, and you're taught systematic theology. You're learning Greek. You're learning Hebrew. And out of that, what were you hearing about covenant theology while you were there? Well, I was hearing that it was, like I said, kind of the boogeyman to be avoided, and it's a system imposed upon the Bible. What was stressed much more would be word studies. Biblicism was actually used as kind of a badge of honor. Since come to learn that biblicism historically has been used as not a badge of honor. Um, yeah, and so what does that mean, biblicism? Uh, biblicism, as I've come to know it, would be when you don't have any kind of system to sort things out. You try to ignore church history and the work of the Spirit in the past, and doesn't matter if there's contradictions or not. Uh, we're just being biblical, and that's biblicism. Reading scripture without the church, without creeds, without confessions, and without consulting the past to see how other Christians and uh, how the tradition broadly has read scripture. Yes, yes. So we use words for convenience like Trinity because it's been sorted out before us, and that would be not biblicism. Um, That would be good, sound, biblical theology, but there's definitely a difference. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And as you're hearing about it and you're working out your own theology, you're a young Christian still getting these things figured out, what happened to you along the way? What was it? um, You said it was justification that sort of drove you or or led you. Did you have any sort of discomfort with dispensationalism or you just accepted it? This is the way it is. This is where Mike is. This is where the school is. This must be the way things are. Well, I accepted it, certainly to a certain degree, but in God's providence, I did have a systematic theology professor that required us to read Burkhoff's systematic theology. That was helpful. Louis Burkhoff was a Reformed theologian who taught at Calvin Theological Seminary for decades and decades into the 1950s or so, and wrote a very influential summary of Reformed doctrine, originally called Reformed Dogmatics and then retitled Systematic Theology. He also had us reading The Imputation of Adam's Sin by John Murray, The Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. These were good books to read, and I was very thankful looking back especially. But what I was learning in one classroom was almost undermined in the next classroom I would go to. So there were some tensions between what you were hearing in the one and in the other. Absolutely. And the thing I'm thankful for, though, Scott, is I was always taught the Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible is inspired and infallible. And so I was always wanting to study the Bible to come to my conclusions. And so going back to the justification thing, really, that has been so key because I've always known that that's true and right, but 
that's tied to covenant theology because we have the federal headship of Adam, federal foidos, meaning covenant, the two Adam theology. So there was just a lot of inconsistency. And the further I studied and the further I came to understand what's been taught before, to have sola fide, we have to have imputation. And the imputation is Christ's obedience to the law. Dispensationalists don't like that kind of talk. You mentioned earlier in the intro with Darby, Darby denied these things. He rejected them. And so even though he may have a firm sola fide in statement, he denied what upheld that doctrine. And so I've come to appreciate covenant theology because it's not necessarily about the rapture or the millennial kingdom or these kinds of issues, as important as maybe those discussions are. It's primarily about soteriology. And so I would affirm the covenant of redemption, which we can talk about, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And according to the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology by Elwell, those three covenants define and explain covenant theology. So I affirm covenant mm. theology. Yeah. Actually, I know Walt. I worked with him. Oh, really? Yeah. He's a great guy. Lovely, kind, gracious. It was one of the great pleasures, actually, of my two years at Wheaton teaching there was to get to know Walt and some of the guys from that generation, from the sort of older neo-evangelical generation. Sure. He's a really kind, generous fellow and a good scholar. So that's right. I agree with Walt that those three covenants are, as a structural matter, at the core of Reformed covenant theology, that uh, God made a promise to Adam before the fall, saying, in effect, by implication, obey the law of God embodied in the command of the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, embodied in the prohibition. Yes. And implied in that is a promise of eternal life. And of course, it was symbolized uh, by two trees, There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which we were not to eat. We could call that the tree of death. And then there was explicitly a tree of life. Exactly. And, and what did that tree of life signify? Well, it signified an entry into an eternal fellowship with God, friendship with God, communion with God, if Adam, as our representative, passed the test of the um, covenant of works, as it's been called, covenant of life, it's been called, covenant of nature, covenant of law. These are all different aspects of the one arrangement into which God entered. And then there's a covenant of redemption, the pactum salutis or the concilium pacis to which you made reference, and that's the eternal covenant from all eternity between the Father and the Son in which the Father says to the Son, I will give you a people, and you will act as their representative, their surety, their mediator, and the Son says, I will do it, takes on that obligation to obey in their place, to accomplish their salvation, so that it's a covenant of works for him and a covenant of grace for us. And then we see the outworking of these principles all through the history of redemption in the covenant of works given to Adam and the covenant of grace published throughout Scripture that unifies all of Scripture. And then a fair bit of the Reformed tradition has affirmed in some sense— now, it's controversial that uh, Israel was a kind of republication, yes. even a witness to the existence of the covenant of works. That's the way a lot of Reformed theologians, for example, understood Leviticus 18.5. So we have always read Scripture as tied together by, for example, the covenant of grace that unifies all of Scripture and the two principles of law and grace, works and grace, represented by these two covenants, covenant of works, covenant of grace. So as you came to all of this, how was that for you? It's very freeing and very helpful in reading the whole Bible. It has a certain continuity to it, and yet it has a discontinuity because law and gospel aren't the same. Works and grace aren't the same. It's so very helpful. And what's interesting, Scott, is as I was listening to you speak and explain and give simple definitions, most people I would know that come from a similar background as I come from 
if you show them chapter and verse in the Bible and don't use the labels, they would affirm many of these things. And I'm thankful for that. It's oftentimes the shorthand labels that gives people the jitters or the heebie-jeebies or whatever it is. So I've tried to give my life to explaining these things, cautious about the labels, although labels are helpful at times, because these things are biblical. I was thinking about Ephesians chapter one, when you were talking about the covenant of redemption and thinking about Luke chapter 10, when Jesus says, do this and live, and he's talking about eternal life. All of these things are in the Bible. And I'm so burdened to help people who believe the Bible is true to know these things. And then to also help them with some categories, some labels that can maybe speed the process up a bit. So what was it as you were reading that uh, sort of led you or where did you turn to begin exploring covenant theology? That is a huge question. For me, most recently, it was regarding whether or not Christ's obedience to the law was for us to be credited to us because of recent controversies regarding the act of obedience of Christ and related to federal headship. So most recently, even though I've learned a lot of this stuff over the years, that became a very important matter. And to really roll the sleeves up and dig in, are these things biblical? Are these things not biblical? And absolutely they are. And it's been the heretics of old who've rejected Christ's act of obedience, that he not only forgives us and we need to be forgiven because we have great sin and guilt, but he positively upholds the law of God so that we can have his righteousness credited to us. Luke chapter 10. I'm so thankful for that article you wrote, the Do This and Live article or the chapter. Uh, What's the name of that book that's in again? Covenant Justification and Pastoral Ministry. And I'd like to say it's available in the bookstore, but it isn't anymore. It's out of print, but you can get it as an ebook through iTunes uh, or through Amazon. So it lives on in digital form. Good. I wanted the listener to, I'm smiling, the listener can't see it, but I so badly wanted Scott to ring that bell that I had to make sure yeah, I mentioned a me book. Up there, yeah. I think the last time I checked Amazon, that book was like $700 yeah, or something. Well, this is what happens. The books go out of print and then the booksellers jack up the price to unreasonable levels. I would really uh, like to encourage listeners who maybe are not familiar with these things, or even if they are, to really look seriously at Luke chapter 10 and what Jesus teaches there. It's clearly talking about eternal life because that's the question. And Jesus says, do this and live, live meaning eternal life, when the answer is love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love neighbor as self. That is what God requires. Salvation is by works, but the problem is we're in Adam, so we could never possibly do it. Yeah, exactly. It might be helpful for the listener to uh, just to hear the text. And a lawyer, it says, beginning in Luke ten twenty five. I think, yes, and I'm reading from the NASB. Okay. All right. Okay. So my dispensational friends will know that I'm using a text or a translation with which they're familiar. Listen to you. Right? I remember. So, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, him being Christ, saying, teacher, what shall I do? That's the question, right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, this is the he now is Christ, said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he, the lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Christ, said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on to explain who his neighbor is and to really sort of put the screws to him, right, to teach him, we would say, the greatness of his sin and misery by essentially expounding the law to him. 
So he could see that his only hope is in Christ, the righteous one. I so love that passage, and I would want to preach that or teach that or help people understand that maybe more than any other text if I had opportunity to talk to evangelicals. Because when we say true or false, salvation is by works, they say false, and that's a good knee-jerk. But in reality, we forget that actually Christ's work is required. That's right. I mean, we do believe in salvation by works, just not by your work. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you can't do it. You haven't done it. But we do believe in salvation by Jesus' works, which are credited. You use the word imputed. That's a good yes. word. Yes. Reckoned to us, counted to us. And we are received by God only on the basis of his work credited to us. And we receive that through faith alone. And you've used that wonderful Latin shorthand, sola fide. That's all we're saying when we say sola fide, is that we receive Christ and his right righteousness by faith, by which we mean trusting, leaning, resting on Christ alone. It's interesting, Scott. I have lots of people I talk to, pastors, fellow pastors and Bible church kinds of ministries. And and I ask them, I say, do you believe in the federal headship of Adam or the federal headship of Christ? And they'll say, yes, I do. And I say, well, that's good. I'm glad you do. And then I'll say, do you believe in covenant theology? And they say, well, no, I don't. (laughs) And so some of this is an educational thing. Some of this is trying to help people understand that covenant theology and federal theology, they're the same exact thing. And so I don't want to berate people. I don't want to put them down or scold them. But I do want people to read and learn, whether it's Buchanan's book on justification or John Fesco's book on justification, but something that draws on old classic writers to sort these things out. And maybe even at some point reading an introduction to covenant theology. Yes. For example, one good one that I have recommended that I enjoy and that people have found helpful. You're going to say Sacred Bond? Sacred Bond. Okay. I think it's a great one. I just recommended it this past week. I think it's super, super helpful. Written by a couple of graduates of this institution, Zach Keel and Mike Brown. And it's a very simple, clear, well-grounded, biblically grounded survey of what Scripture says about the covenant of grace, particularly in the covenant of work. Yes. And I don't know either of those gentlemen, but I think they owe me a lot of money because we sell a lot of their books in our bookstore. Yeah, you have a bookstore in the church at Omaha Bible Church. So if you're in Omaha and you're looking for a place to worship, Omaha Bible Church is where? Omaha Bible Church is 7940 State Street, just off of 680 and 72nd Street. So on the northwest corner of Omaha. Yes, I heard actually the bookstore manager said to me that you were in the bookstore one day and you were actually signing books that you were the author of. (laughs) Just for fun. I went in there just for fun because it's fun for people to go in and buy a book and then see the name in there. Or maybe they'll be frustrated and disgusted that I defaced it. I I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was very, very funny. So I did that because uh, one time I found a a copy of C.S. Lewis in a tiny, cramped corner bookstore in the UK. It was a hard copy of Lewis, which you don't always see. And I pulled that off the shelf and there was his name inscribed in there. And then I thought that was nice. And also a copy of uh, Christianity and Liberalism by Machen that I got at a library sale for some ridiculous price, $5, hard copy. And lo and behold, on the flyleaf inside, there is a J. Gresson Machen. So, Seriously? Yeah. So I that, think that's unique because I don't think it was as common as it is today to do autographs. No. So I actually have a signed copy of What is Faith that someone gave me as a gift, and it's a cherished gift for me. Yeah, so that was my thinking. So the preaching there is always edifying and encouraging, and the people are warm and gracious and friendly. So we've always enjoyed worshiping there, and you've always received us very kindly. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village 
a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments including one, two, and three-bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kemp, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential residential village. WSCAL.edu 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So let's uh, think about some more difficult questions now. I've been dodging those in anticipation, so yeah, let's, (laughs) let's do that. Time to turn up the temperature on the hot seat here. For example, one of the objections that uh, I have gotten, and I'm sure you have gotten, and you might have gotten it when you began to explain these things to your congregation, is this one. You talk to me, Pastor, about a covenant of works, and I have looked and looked and looked in my Bible, and I do not see those words in the Bible, covenant of works. So, Pat Abendroth, isn't this a classic <laughs> example of imposing a system on Scripture and not actually following the Bible? And doesn't this just illustrate everything that they warned you about in seminary. I've definitely heard that before, as you have. And to be honest, I try not to use the loaded labels, except in certain company. But I do like to have people open their Bible, for example, to Hosea 6 and see that there was a covenant with Adam. And they've oftentimes been told there's no covenant with Adam. And I can show them in the Bible, they say they believe. Sure enough, there it is. So we at least have some traction there. And that's a traditional view. It's disputed now in some places, and perhaps has been for a while, but traditionally in Christian theology, that was the widely held reading of that passage. And what's interesting is in circles I would run in, people say, and rightfully so, the Bible's true, the Bible is believable, and uh, I found that passage to be very, very helpful in explaining things to people because there it is right there on the page. Did you know that Augustine in the City of God— 1627, right, chapter 16, section 27, he says that God made a covenant with Adam before the fall. I did know that, and I didn't know it was 1627. I thought you were getting your dates a little mixed up when it comes to Augustine. It's in the city of God. So this is something that the fathers saw, and they saw it because of their reading of Hosea. What's interesting about that too, Scott, is a lot of people I talk to, even pastors, if I say, well, what is a covenant? Mm -hmm. And They don't really even know what a covenant is, which is kind of disheartening, but I want to help. So a covenant is a formal agreement. And even if the word covenant is not used, clearly God and Adam weren't in a casual relationship. We have a creator-creature relationship. There were promises. There were sanctions. There were rewards. Absolutely. So all the stuff that makes a covenant. So when you get married, you take an oath. You make promises, and if you break those promises, there are sanctions. Yes, it's not a casual relationship. When you buy a house, 
You make promises. Chiefly, I will make the monthly payment. And the lender says, and I promise to come and take your house if you don't make the payment. Absolutely. And that's a covenant. Then there are covenants, codes, and restrictions. So there are covenants all the time in life. We just don't think of them as such. I mean, we live in, I would say, a social covenant. Sometimes we call it a compact in society. And if you break that covenant by murdering somebody, then they arrest you, they try you. If you're convicted, then you have to pay a penalty for that. Yes, we have them with our telephone bills, uh, contracts all of the time. So, In fact, arguably, most of life, apart from the administration of the means of grace, is actually a covenant of works. School is a covenant of works. Do this and live, right? Do the homework, write the term paper, pass the exam. It's true. It's a covenant of works. Your job is a covenant of works, right? Show up, do your job, or face the consequences. Absolutely. The other place I really like to go is Romans chapter 5, just to help people think through Romans 5. If you can make traction there in that given text and the two Adams, the two representatives, and that's why we're all related to the first Adam, and we need to be related to the last Adam, Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15, and that happens by faith. But it is definitely based upon their actions, their merits, their law-keeping or law-breaking. And so that's covenant theology kind of 101 in Romans chapter 5. Again, for the listener, if this is new to you, right, Pastor Pat is not making things up. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, when did they sin, according to Paul? Well, they sinned in Adam. For until the law, that's the giving of the Mosaic law, sin was in the world. Well, how was sin in the world before the giving of the Mosaic law? Well, there was already a law in the world. God said, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. That was a law. It summarized the whole moral law. Love the Lord your God with all your faculties and your neighbor as yourself, which, of course, we in Adam, and Adam as our representative, didn't do. But sin is not imputed when there is no law, which is Paul's summary of what I just told you. Nevertheless, verse 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Of course, that's Christ. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. And transgression is legal, right? It's law word. You transgress law. That's right. Much more did the grace of God. So you have transgression and law on the one hand and grace on the other, right? Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For, on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness— Or obedience, right? Or obedience, there resulted justification of life to all men. For— as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, 
Even so, through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's so helpful. Realizing it's difficult, you have to sort it out. It's even hard to read sometimes when you're reading a different translation, right? But all of the legal terms, I found dispensationalists who I love and care for have benefited from thinking through how legal all of that is. Transgression, that's legal. Righteousness, that's adherence to law. All of these things justified, that's declared righteous, which is legal. Even sin, according to 1 John, is lawlessness. So all of these legal things, and many times dispensationalists, if they're really strong into dispensationalism, they think that there was a dispensation of law and it's gone, so there's nothing to do with law anymore. So they're very confused by Romans 5. Yeah. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the system. It doesn't have to be so problematic if you just take time to think it through. I found Romans 5 to really, really help my own life and thinking and theology, but it helps other people as well. It's worth owning that passage, if you will. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So when you were in seminary, it was just after evangelicals and Catholics together. And then just before that, or me, yeah, just a little bit before that, had been the lordship debate. Yes. And uh, John MacArthur had been at the center of that. Yes. And so you were right in the vortex of that in some ways, I suppose. Yes, I was. So how have you navigated that, and how has covenant theology, embracing Reformed covenant theology with the covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption, law and gospel, works and grace, all that stuff, how has that helped you to think through the issues connected with the Lordship salvation debate? What has helped me to think through the issues would be the distinction between the law and the gospel. I think what ends up happening is we make the law kind of law light and somehow we can accomplish this law of God. He calls us to love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength and neighbor as self, and we can kind of do it. Sort of like Romans chapter 10, we have our own version of the law and now we can scale the wall. Whereas in reality, that law is impossible for us in Adam to accomplish. And what it does is it shows us our sin and misery, as you said, and shows us our need for Christ. And so I do want to preach law and I do want to tell people that they must be perfect in order to go to heaven. And I want them to see that they simply cannot do it as I cannot do it. So you look to the one who is the one who fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And so I think preaching should be stronger than the Lordship preaching so that people see that there's no possible way they could do this and live, Luke chapter 10, and they can look to Christ who did this so that we could live. So you're really helping people to distinguish between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Absolutely, to use those terms. So when someone says to you, well, yes, Christ died to make salvation possible, but you have to do your part, that's not a covenant of grace. It's not at all. It's a covenant of works. It's a mixture between law and gospel. And as you and I have quoted my court before, that's gospel. Yeah. But on the other hand, good works do come. They come as the fruit. They come as a result. We're, and say that again. You said that very quickly. Good works come as a fruit. That is hugely important because I think a lot of people, and, and I'm sorry to say that there are Reformed people that struggle with that notion, even though our confessions are very clear about that. The Belgic Confession, chapter 24, explicitly says what you just said, that we are justified even before we do good works. But good trees 
right? Regenerated trees, united to Christ trees, yes. justified sola gratia, sola fide trees produce good fruit. They do. In so fact. You're, you're not then advocating some kind of antinomianism where, well, now we're justified and we can dispense with the moral law. Absolutely not. No. In fact, we were dead and were made alive and people who are alive act like people who are alive. Right. And so we still ask ourselves, now that I'm in Christ, how do I respond? And the law guides me as I seek to respond. I want to love the Lord my God with all my faculties. I want to love my neighbor as myself. I don't want to be an idolater. I don't want to be disrespectful to authority. I don't want to abuse the Lord's name. I don't want to be a thief. I don't want to be an adulterer, exactly. coveter, or exactly. any of those things. So the law comes back not as our way to salvation, and certainly not the instrument, not the basis, but it comes back as our guide. Yes, Scott, it makes me think of even the psalmist talking about the law being a light unto our path. So now as a believer in Christ, united to him by faith, I want the law to guide me. It's no longer condemning me. So now I'm free to follow it, and it's a joy to follow it. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then if you just follow the book of Romans, I know you agree with this, Paul begins to lay out what the new life in Christ looks like. You were thinking the same way. I'm so glad you brought that up. But my big burden for friends and people I know would be to not somehow get good works into Romans 1 to 5, yeah. broadly speaking, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's keep good works where they belong. They don't belong in the justification category. Not your good works anyway. No, absolutely. Good correction. But they come in Romans chapter 6. And so let's keep them in Romans chapter 6. And that's the sanctification chapter, or one of them. Yes, so yes. One through, you say, 118 through 320, Paul's preaching the law, 321, right through the middle of Romans, Paul's preaching the gospel, and then you get to the Christian life as a consequence. And as others have said before us, if people aren't asking the question to us when they hear our gospel presentations, if they're not asking the question of Romans 6, then we haven't been clear enough. Yeah, that was Martin Lloyd-Jones, right, who said, if your gospel preaching does not cause people to come to you and say, well, where's the place for the moral law? You know, are you saying that we should sin, that grace may abound? If they're not asking you that question, then that raises questions about the nature of your preaching, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. We're holding Christ forth so salvation is found in him. It's so free. It's so gracious. And the invitation is so open that God really justifies sinners. It is good news, right? It's not good advice. It's not what we're telling people to do other than to trust in Christ. Well, Pat, are you glad you made the journey— from Darby to Geneva. I'm very glad I've made the journey by God's grace. And Scott, more recently, I've been fascinated with Darby, actually, mm. um, starting to read more and more about Darby, uh, more from even the Brethren historians, and finding out that he was, how can I nicely put it? He was a real <laughs> piece of work. But that's an expression that we have from back home. Yeah. It's not a nice thing if you're a piece of work, generally. God giving him new revelation, all of these kinds of strange doctrines and ideas. I want to be distanced from him as far as possible. And to be sure, right, Lewis Berry Schaefer and Charles Ryrie Wing did make some significant changes Indeed. to dispensationalism. But there were still things that needed to be fixed. And I'm a little bit optimistic about the progressive dispensational movement because they do begin to see more continuity between the Old and New Testaments. And you can almost hear them talking about the covenant of grace unifying the history of redemption. Do you think I'm being too optimistic or what do you think? I think it's helpful. 
I think it's helpful. The trajectory is a good trajectory. There have been changes. They just need to keep coming. <laughs> Indeed, they do. And eventually, they'll come to covenant theology is what we would call it. And there are, and this is the last thing, there are some real psychological, emotional, and social questions in making a transition like this, right? In other words, when you identify as a dispensationalist and you begin to have questions about it, you begin to doubt it, and you begin to read the other side about which you've been warned. That's kind of difficult sometimes. Yes. That's what I was kind of getting at earlier. When you first crack open a Witsius or a Calvin or a Turretin or a Horton or a yes. Brown and a Keel yes. or some representative of covenant theology that is getting these things right, a covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption, that can be a little scary because you've been warned that it's bad stuff and it's dangerous and bad things can happen to you if you go this way. I know a young man who is being you know, well used as a pastor in a faithful Presbyterian church. He was warned that if he went that direction, he would never become a pastor. Hmm. So I was overjoyed to participate in his ordination to make sure that he became good, good. a pastor. Well, there are always those, you know, social kind of costs to things, but the truth is the truth, and that's encouraging and motivating. I've found that it's interesting to go back and read some of these older authors that I used to esteem, like Ryrie. If you read Ryrie's section on justification, it's just abysmal. Mm. Why so? Because he doesn't affirm the act of obedience of Christ. Yeah. It sounds That's a feature in modified dispensationalism, isn't it? That yes. they were worried about affirming the imputation of active obedience because they thought it might diminish your incentive to be uh, sanctified. Maybe. To be sanctified, but I think it's that, Scott. I also think it has to do with that law thing, yeah. because again, that's Christ adherence to law, and that's a different dispensation. So there's this kind of phobia mm. of anything law, even though we have law all over the place, even if it's not that exact word used. I read Chafer not too long ago, not the whole thing, not all of the volumes. Yeah, it's a large set. It is, it is. But, you know, Chafer taught that Jesus was raised only for the Christians, and he wasn't raised for the Jews. Well, that creates a pretty big problem when Paul says Jesus was raised for our justification, <laughs> yeah. right? And so, so this goes back to the two peoples theory. It goes you back have to the two peoples. Earthly people that are Jewish and a heavenly people who are Christians. It gets you pretty close to two ways of salvation. It does. Which is problematic. So there are some connections between the original dispensationalists and the modified and probably some distance between Schaefer and then Ryrie, and then who would be the sort of successor to Ryrie, do you think, in dispensationalism? So you have Ryrie, then you end up, well, at least in seminary for me, we would be reading more progressive guys like Sosi, who definitely would be different than Ryrie. But all of these things just remind me, maybe if listeners are reading the Witsius or the Hortons of the world or whoever it might be, sometimes it's helpful to then go back and read the dispensationalists, because then you're seeing a little bit clearer. You can see the contrast. You can see the contrast and you realize that you really do want to leave that other thing behind. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.